Last week we started looking at how this all impacts our lives. So we looked at John 17, uh, Jesus' prayer for the unity of the church. And tonight we're going to look at Jesus sending out the church in John 20 and 21. Because these are the two parts that really we ought to be paying attention to as we apply John to our lives. Jesus' prayer, his high priestly prayer, John 17, that we would love one another and be completely unified. That's absolutely primary. So we looked at that last week. I did a, a bit of a blog on it on the website. And tonight looking at Jesus sending us out as the church, John 20 and 21. So this is the third time that we've been through John 20 and 21 in this series. <laughs> About the last, so get used to it. And we're ending John, but of course it's a new beginning. And Jesus will send the disciples on a whole new journey. So let's look at this quickly going through and get ready for, the, for you guys reflecting and sharing at the end. Okay, are we ready? Cool. I love John 20 and 21. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. And she's running. And then Peter and John are running. And it's like a wonderful moment way back in 2 Samuel 18 when Hahimaz ha- ha- uh, and a Cushite man run and outrun each other and get there before each other in their excitement to share with King David that the victory had been accomplished. And here we have this sense of victory. They're running and outrunning each other. But this time it's to see what happened and then be a bit confused. But there are echoes of excitement all the way back from 2 Samuel 18. Check it out. Then in verse 9, they still don't understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And this is wonderful. It's really a hint to us. If we really want to understand what just happened with the resurrection, we need to read the scriptures. But then in verses 10 to 18, uh, it points back to Genesis 2, the Garden of Eden. And here is Jesus in a garden. And Mary thinks he's the gardener. And he is. He's the gardener of a new creation. The new creation has been born. And here is the garden. And Jesus says to her, go and tell the others. And Mary Magdalene, therefore, is the first apostle, if you like, the first bearer of the good news. And Jesus could have picked anyone he wanted. (laughs) But here he picks Mary Magdalene, a woman, a prostitute, of all people, to be the first to go and tell others. And she's to tell others that Jesus has not only risen from the dead, but that he's ascending to the Father. Verse 17. And the point for us is our new task as a church will be to go and tell. There are echoes here of Moses and Miriam singing a song of triumph by the Red Sea. And in John, we've come through the waters of death into new life on the other side. So it's like the time of the Exodus when Moses and Miriam sang a song of triumph. And here is Jesus with Miriam. Miriam is her Aramaic name. And he's actually calling her that our translations don't pick that up. So again, shades of the, the triumph of Israel coming out of the Red Sea. Well, here we have the triumph now of Jesus' resurrection and this feeling of excitement that there's a whole new world ahead. And then in verses 19 to 23, where to make it happen, where to step forward bravely in this new world. There's a job for us to do in the power of the Spirit. On the evening of the first day, 
Jesus comes and stands amongst his disciples. Peace be with you. He breathes on them. And again, this is a Genesis 2 moment because in Genesis 2, God breathed into the nostrils of humanity the breath of life and they became living beings. And here Jesus breathes new creation life, the Spirit, into his disciples. And he says, receive the Spirit. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I've never really thought about this before this series and this has been the biggest thing in this series for me, what I'm about to tell you. For me, it changes everything. When Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, really it means, as Jesus to Israel, so us to the world. As Jesus was to Israel, so the church to the world. What Jesus was doing in and for this microcosm of the world, these Jewish people, challenging them with the message of the kingdom, living out their traditions and, but transforming them in the process, fulfilling their hopes but turning them inside out and upside down, enacting signs of glory that pointed to something greater and planting seeds of hope, ultimately dying as the king of the Jews and rising to launch what the Jews had always longed for, the new creation. Jesus summing up all that Israel had ever hoped for, but giving a completely new spin on it, completely revolutionising their understanding. He brought in something they could never imagine. That's what the church has to be within the wider world, listening to its stories, understanding its life, its aspirations, its problems, its questions. And then in the power of the Spirit, learning how to live the kingdom of God in and for the world to show the world a greater future, a greater hope. As, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And so it's a challenge for us to go back through the Gospels and ask, what would it mean for us to be a people for the world based on what Jesus was for Israel? What would it mean for us to join in the culture that we're part of, the celebrations, the traditions, just as Jesus did, but bring the better wine, as we say, showing how Jesus redeems and completes our culture's hopes, asking questions like, what would the good news look like to the people in our culture that we're trying to reach out to? And then enacting signs of glory which demonstrate that and planting seeds of hope that point to a greater future than our culture ever dreamed of. Acting boldly in the power of the Spirit, announcing the kingdom of God in word and deed. So this gives us a ground plan for the mission of the church in the world. Through the church, the Spirit will testify the word to the world. As we engage with the culture we're in, as Jesus did, and become sign makers and seed sowers for the kingdom. I suggested a few weeks back um, that it'd be great for you guys to go through the whole of John's Gospel. Think about the signs that Jesus did. Perhaps take them in prayer. Work through as your life group, maybe one per week. Pray through this sign and that sign. 
What would it mean, Lord, for us to be sign makers for the kingdom in our context? To be for the world what Jesus was for Israel. To plant seeds of hope and enact signs of glory in our culture. I also suggested that groups go through John 18 to 19 where Jesus is before Pilate and I asked, how does Jesus speak truth to power? How does he speak to the powers that be? And how ought we speak truth to power in our culture, at school, at work, in the community, in politics, at university, in the media? How do we stand up as Christians in a context where we're not in power? Where the powers to be are fairly hostile towards our message. How does Jesus speak in a hostile world? How does he speak to power? So I asked you to sort of think about that, so I'm really looking forward to hearing if anyone came up with stuff there. But I was giving examples throughout this series Examples of signs of glory, seeds of hope. Like this tree of life constructed by these guys from Mozambique out of weapons left over from the Mozambique Civil War. And the tree of life will stand in the new creation. So it's a way of them saying what God will do <laughs> with the whole broken creation. He'll restore it. He'll renew creation. So that's planting you know, a flag in hostile soil, isn't it? You know, that's a sign of hope in the world. The curator of the British Museum is a Christian. He had the courage and the boldness to fight the arguments he needed to in order to get this artwork presented in this museum. A Christian piece of art. Sign of glory, seed of hope, planted in a fairly hostile environment. I also talked about the evangelism project, uh, Peter Rowlands in Northern Ireland. They send out teams of Christians to be evangelised by other religions, atheists, secularists, Hindus, Buddhists, whatever, to listen to what they believe and why they believe it. And like Jesus before Pilate, I think this is speaking truth to power, you see. They didn't meet power with power. They... They go humbly with love and openness to others. And what they're doing is subversive. It's turning the tables on the powers that be. Coming so humbly and listening. It's, it's making a statement for Christ in the way that they're doing it. It's sending a signal to the culture that this is true just in the way they were conducting themselves, in humility, listening, opening up to others, respecting what they're saying. And then, of course, that opened up a chance to talk about Jesus. So this is all about speaking truth to power, engaging with culture in a way that plants a seed of hope where people are not necessarily ready to listen. And there'll be many people that we just simply share the gospel with because they're ready to listen. But there'll be many, many, many people. We can be like Jesus. Look at how he did it. He was smart. He was strategic. He chose careful things that he did. Healing on the Sabbath. Overturning the tables. 
riding in on a donkey. It spoke loudly in his culture about the truth. How can we be clever? How can some of us who have gifts in strategy or gifts in being creative with this, how can we speak into what our groups are doing to come up with really cool signs of glory, seeds of hope? I also mentioned a young artist who came to faith in Christ as an undergraduate. He struggled with his Marxist tutors who despised him for his Christian faith. You couldn't possibly be a committed artist and a Christian, they said. He nearly gave up. But his answer, to his own surprise, through the power of the Spirit, was to start painting wonderful abstract images of Christ. They were spectacular. They were deeply beautiful. And he didn't tell his tutors what they were until the tutors had expressed their surprise and delight in this new direction in his artwork, which was so obviously you know, inspiring him to fresh creativity. They couldn't help but admire what he was doing. And so then they asked him, okay, what has happened in your life? And he told them the story of Jesus and he'd become a Christian. And so often these kinds of things open a door to talk about Jesus. Jesus did all these things which opened an opportunity often to talk further about, about what he had come to do. Doing something that challenges the status quo. Speaking truth to power. This is what Jesus did. Planting flags in hostile soil. Setting up signposts to a different way of being human. Hey, we're going to come and listen to you guys evangelize us, even though we're Christians. We want you to know there's a different way to be human, a way of humility, a way of listening, a way of engaging respectfully, etc., etc. Prayerfully finding fresh new symbols that speak of the hope that we have. I heard of some Christians helping out a gay Mardi Gras. They wanted to show the love of Christ. How were they going to engage with the gay Mardi Gras? What were they to do? And you know that the gay community is pretty hostile to Christians. Not much space to just share the gospel in some straightforward way. How were they to speak boldly and carefully and lovingly to this group? And they knew that they couldn't join in in the Mardi Gras. That would have sent all the wrong signals. So they decided instead to volunteer to clean up the mess afterwards. And that's what they did. And people were awed by that. You cleaned up our mess? And there was considerable mess. And by cleaning up the mess, it was subversive. It was challenging their culture. It was opening a space, not, not just by being loving, but also being a great symbol that challenged what they were doing. And they were able to talk about the gospel. Bishop St uh, Stuart Robinson uh, was in theological college with me. He's now Bishop of Canberra. He carried a cross all around <laughs> Canberra Goulburn Diocese. And that's a great symbol. That's a, that's a seed of hope. That's a, that's a sign of glory, the cross. And the fact that he's carrying it around. What a great symbol. And everywhere he went, he would stop and preach the gospel. Got media coverage. Lots and lots and lots and lots of people became Christians. The sign of glory gave 
an opening for the gospel to be shared. And that's just a smart thing he thought through. Jesus thought everything through. He was very careful with how he engaged with culture. We can't all do that. We've got to keep coming up with fresh expressions which suit the people we're trying to reach out to. Who are the people you're reaching as your missional community, your life group? What would be a really fresh, bold, interesting sign of glory to, to, do, to, to, to do among them? And in this way, we proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to our culture with sensitivity. It's part of our love. Proclaiming and living the kingdom within our culture in ways that point to the hope that we have. So lots of thinking work that needs to be done as part of that. And in this way, verse 23, we're announcing forgiveness of sins to the world. Renouncing in word and deed God's glad, exuberant and healing uh, welcome to sinners. And at the same time, we're announcing God's sorrowful but unwavering opposition to those who persist in arrogant defiance of God. Forgiveness, the best news anyone could ever hear for all those who long for it and judgment for all who insist on dehumanizing themselves and others by their continuing pride and greed and rejection of the truth. That's what signs of glory, seeds of hope do. They're both the double edge. They're subversive, but they're full of hope as well. Okay, I did a blog on this on the website. There's another blog coming because this is kind of basic for what we're trying to do at SOMA. This is what we mean by the missional church, that we do this sort of stuff. As we saw last week, the key sign of glory um, that we're to enact is our unity and love in Christ. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, united together is a great sign of the glory to come. Let's work at our unity and let's work at people seeing it. In the workplace, they need to see Christians unified, loving one another and reaching out to others. That is the main sign of glory that we're called to. It's all through the Apostle Paul's letters. At school, at university, in our community generally, that's the main sign of glory, but there might be many other things that we come up with. Works of art that we display, activities we do, all sorts of things. But the main one is our unity and love. And the more we understand the enormity of this calling to be Jesus, in a sense, to our world, and the more we realise we need the Spirit. We can't do it ourselves. We need his wisdom and leading and guidance. Receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> As the Father sent me, so I send you. I'm going to keep going. Is that right? I don't want to ask questions now. Is that right? Uh, but <laughs> is that, or do you want to ask questions so far? There's a lot there. there there's a big nugget of stuff. Yeah, so this is our journey We've, from evangelicalism to the missional church, yeah? Are you understanding we have changed in understanding we have to engage much more and much, much smarter with culture? But we can't do this without a new kind of knowing and a new kind of loving very quickly. Two more stories I want to look at. 
and then you guys get a chance. Thomas, and then Peter. A new kind of knowing and a new kind of loving. Thomas, I'm not going to (laughs) believe unless I touch and I see. And Jesus says, well, Thomas, you shouldn't have asked that, but be my guest. Touch and see. And despite all the paintings that have Thomas putting his fingers into Jesus' side, we're not told that Thomas did that. Thomas simply says, my Lord and my God. Thomas says what the whole gospel is about. There's something important being said at the end of John's gospel here about a different kind of knowing. Thomas wants to touch and see. Jesus says, okay, if you want to touch, touch. But there's another way to know. He doesn't say no. He says yes and more. There's something here for people needing proof. Skeptic asks for evidence. There there is evidence. There are good answers to people. But the ultimate answer is, it would, would have been better if you didn't approach Jesus that way. There's another way to know him. There's a new kind of knowing. And he can reveal himself to you if you come humbly seeking him. But then for Peter, a new kind of loving. There's a transi- uh, translation problem here. Uh, John 21:15. Simon, son of John, that's Peter. Do you love me more than these? Do you agape me? Agape, the love of self-giving. Peter, will you give yourself for me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, says Simon. I know I filio you. Filio is a different word than agape in the Greek. Filio means I'm your friend. Agape means I'll die for you. (laughs) I'll give myself to you. So do you see what's going on here? Simon, son of John, will you give yourself to me for me? And Peter says, no. But I am your friend. Is that okay? And Peter, just the smell of a charcoal fire would have reminded him because he's at, Jesus has this charcoal fire. He's given them breakfast, yeah? The charcoal fire, the only time that word is used elsewhere in uh, the scriptures is, guess what? Hey? Is denial. The high priest's courtyard is the only other time in the New Testament where this word is used, this charcoal word. So the smell of the charcoal would have reminded Peter that Peter had denied Jesus three times. So Peter is not able to say, I'll give myself to you. He knows he hasn't. He knows that he's just not there yet. Yes, Lord, clinging clinging on by the fingernails, you know I'm your friend. But no, I'm not ready to give myself for you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Well, that's a shock. Shock. Peter was hoping at at best for a gentle word of forgiveness, you know, and, oh, that's okay. One day, you know, you'll get back on track and then I'll give you a job to do. No, Jesus immediately gives him a job anyway. Feed my lambs. And this word of commission is also a word of forgiveness and reconciliation. This is how it always is in our relationship with Christ. 
All of our mission flows out of his forgiving love where he goes, you're not up to standard, but I forgive you. Get on with it anyway. And then Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know I filio you. Again. And Jesus again says, tend my sheep. And then Jesus says a third time, Simon, son of John, do you filio me? Are you my friend? See what happened there? <laughs> the third time, Jesus didn't ask him, do you agape me? He asked him, are you my friend? And Peter was sad that the third time Jesus didn't use the word agape, he used the word filio. In other words, Jesus is lowering the bar. But Peter shouldn't have been sad because that's the whole point. And this is how Jesus is with all of us. The whole point is, if that's where you're at, you're my friend but you're not prepared to give your life for me, let's start with where you're at. This whole mission thing we've just talked about is actually incredibly confronting when you think through how are we going to be like Israel was to Israel? How are we going to be like that to the world? Are we ready for that? Well, Jesus says, I'll start with where you are and we'll go forward from that basis. Simon, son of John, do you filio me? Peter felt hurt when Jesus said that. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I filio you, I'm your friend. And Jesus said, okay, feed my sheep. <laughs> feed my sheep, get on with it. Get out there, even though you don't feel like you're ready. And then he says, get used to this, Peter. When you were younger, you dressed yourself, but when you're older, someone else is going to dress you and take you where you don't want to go. In other words, you're going to suffer. Verse 19, this will be how you will glorify God. And after that, Jesus said, follow me. Wow. Then that's where it ends. Jesus saying to us, follow me. In, in your brokenness, in the fact that you're not quite ready. Step forward in this mission that I'm calling you to. And you can only do that as you experience my forgiving love. So both, in both cases, Thomas and Peter, Jesus starts where they're at in order to help them move forward. And he will do the same for us. So Sam did an artwork for me. How good is this, Sam? I can't believe how good it is. Everyone on Facebook's been going, yeah, 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 this is really cool. So this is John's Gospel. The eagle represents John's Gospel. We know that, yep. Uh, the Gospel is Jesus, you know, the eagle. The, the power is coming from Jesus through the Spirit. But the community then starts to form. Fragile at first, but we start to love each other. And then we start to move into mission and become more and more ambitious with that. So there's a flow. We need to know Jesus' love and forgiveness. We need to know him more and more. We need to know the risen Christ as an actual reality. And out of that will flow the beginnings of community, then the beginnings of mission, and hopefully as we travel, 
we're empowered more and more to do more and more mission and to understand what he's calling us to. Hi. Well, I've been reading through John a fair bit and um, I got to chapter 18 and was quite blown away by something there which we haven't directly looked at in a talk but I think it, it sort of highlights some of the things we talked about and you don't have to look it up because I want to ask you a question <laughs> to start with. Um, so it comes after the um, prayer where Jesus prays for unity and talks about his unity with the Father and the night that he dies um, and he leaves the, the supper and goes with his disciples to the garden and Judas who's missed out on all that wonderful prayer meanwhile is um, setting out to betray him and takes a, a company of Roman soldiers, temple police and um, a commander of, a, of the company of soldiers, which apparently can be up to a thousand men, but I guess it maybe wasn't that night. And they come with lanterns, torches and weapons. And um, does anyone... Uh, so, and Jesus goes out and he says, who are you looking for? And um, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And does anyone know what happens when he says, I am he? Yeah. These, all these men fall over. They step back and fall over. So just imagine the scene. Just <laughs> and if you were one of those men, um, can you tell me what you might have been thinking? I mean, because I've been wondering what were they thinking when they fell over. Any thoughts, if, you, if it was you, maybe? Maybe, yeah, must be God. The, the temple police were sent out in chapter 7 to arrest Jesus and they went back to the, the Pharisees and chief priests and they said, well, where is he? They went, well, <laughs> we didn't arrest him because no one's ever talked like him before. Um, what about the Roman soldiers or... Yeah, yeah. Those words had some impact. I thought maybe some of them felt ridiculous. Like, here am I on the ground, <laughs> someone singeing my hair with their torch, my weapons tangled up with <laughs> his lantern. I mean, the scene must have been. And then, then Jesus says again, who are you looking for? And they go... Where are they still on the ground? But they say, ah, oh, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And um, then they get up and <laughs> they arrest him and tie him up, which to me is just absolutely just another... What are they thinking? You can't tie up God. He'd just go, if he wanted to. So um, I just think it's... I don't know, I can, I can ponder it a lot, but as far as I've got is, is thinking that somehow they felt the weight of his, his glory and it was like force field time. <laughs> he just let, it, let that little bit of his godness um, come out and it was enough to knock them flat. And, and also the imagery of, of light perhaps is like that. They, meet, they encounter the light of the world and they've got these little puny torches and lanterns and 
And then they hear his voice and he says, I, the I am word. And, and he's just talked about, and not just in John 17, but in John 10, I am he. It's almost like he's saying I am, and he, he, he and I am, you know, and interchanging the words. So I find it very um, reassuring of his power, I guess, that he, he, was, he actually did give up his life of his own accord um, because no one could take it from him. They didn't have that power over him. Um, I've thought about unity all week since Dave's talk. Um, last week it kind of, it's just been happening to me. Um, something gets into my head. I'm sure it's the spirit and it just sits there and it ruminates and it goes around and around and it was unity this week and um, just going back to that that uh, the the line I think it's Paul talks about um, and we all know it that that uh, there's neither Jew nor Gentile slave nor free male nor female but all one in Christ Jesus and clearly they were distinctions in the first century that were creating divisions in the church and um, when Paul says there there aren't any anymore well, of course, there were. You know, there were still Jews and Gentiles and slave and free and male and female within the body. But, but Paul, I think, is saying um, that's not their identity. That's not who you see when you look at them anymore. You see a child of God. And, and I thought, well, what are our distinctions? Because they're not Jew and Gentile and slave and free as much. Well... I don't think so anymore. But we have other distinctions, I think. Just as human beings, we gravitate towards people who are more like us, whatever that is in our personality or our preferences. And, and that's often where we see identity rather than, you know, we're all children of God. Um, and there's no superior and there's no inferior. Um, so it just really struck me, you know, that one thing with 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 unity being a true sign of glory and seed of hope, that, that this is our challenge to just really look at each other and see that as our, as our key identity. And I was thinking how Jesus did that. Um, you know, he sees a tax collector in a tree and he doesn't see a tax collector, he sees a child of God, you know, come down Zacchaeus. And then the woman at the well, you know, there's another child of God, let me have a chat. And, and um, that I think is, is truly radical. And I don't think we can do it. We can't do it without the spirit. Um, that we can see God in each other is, is what we, we're aiming for. And that when we see God in each other, we'll be better at seeing God in everyone around us. But there's still diversity, but there's unity. I think it's a paradox in some ways because I think often the church has got it wrong. We've all got to look like this and we've all got to be like this and we've all got to sound like this, but that's not unity. That's, that's conformity. Unity isn't conformity. When I was younger, we always used to read the King James Version and there was the verse, um, and we used to sing even a hymn, God is no respecter of persons. Does anyone know that line? Like, ever heard it from the old King James? When I was a kid, I used to wonder what that meant because I think, does that mean God doesn't respect people? You know, does that mean that God doesn't, you know? Um, but I looked it up later and it's mean he doesn't show favouritism. Um, he actually doesn't look at anybody as more important than anybody else or more worthy of his favour. So 
yeah, it's just been going around in my head and the idea that true unity is a sign of glory and a seed of hope, I think it's, it's part of our mission. Takes that little bit of guts to stand up here, doesn't it? Good on you, Glenda and Lisey. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about... Um, what was I thinking about? Uh, a bit more of what Lisey was talking about, unity, and um, because I was, I was... Because I do music a fair bit, you often read lyrics on um, of various songs, and in Christian circles, you just hear a lot of phrases that are just really common and they they just kind of they just kind of they just come out somehow don't they without thinking about them too much stuff like um you know god is great or um he wipes away my tears or he um he 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 befriends the lonely or he you know we we say all this stuff about god and how good he is and how great he is and 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 we say it as if we're talking about, well, and we are about God, and he's and he's and it's somebody else. Like it's 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 God. He is all this stuff, and I'm, I'm thinking, well, so what? What does that mean? What, what does it mean if I can say God is great? You know, what? what so what? What's with that? And or how do I even actually know it's true? Like I had a little cry the other day, and I didn't actually feel him wipe away my tears or anything. You know, there was nothing happening there. So what's what's with that? And then I thought a little bit more. I thought, okay, we've got um, we've got Jesus in John, and and Jesus is God just as much as God the Father is, or God the Spirit. So and Jesus actually did all those things. I so so okay. I should be able to work out that all those things are true about God. God, you know, he he cares for the weakest in society. He um, he befriends the lonely. He, he speaks to the outcast. He, he all these things. He <clears throat> he gives life to the dead. He heals the sick. He he actually does all those things. And we know that Jesus is God. So okay, I can I can establish that yes, all those things I've been saying or singing or, or whatever about God. Yes, they they are actually true. But once again, so what? That's God. Jesus isn't around here right now. He's not doing these things for me right now. And and um, and then all the next thought was, yeah, actually, what I'm doing here now is I'm making me the centre of um, everything, and I'm expecting I'm expecting to see something here, God. What's 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 happening? Um, but if I um, if I stand back a bit. What I should be seeing is that Jesus is the centre of everything, and just just as um, yeah, Dave said it before, uh, that Jesus said, so, "So the Father sent me, so I send you." So every time I say something about God, as if I'm saying something about someone out there, well, I'm actually sort of um, if if I believe that the Spirit's at work in my heart, I'm actually saying it about myself. And that if I am actually going to be Jesus to um, the world around me, I've got to be the one who's being all those things to the people around me. It's actually my job to, to wipe someone's little tear away if I ever get the opportunity or to, um, to, to just sidle up next to them and say, hey, how are you going there? What's, what's happening? Um, where, where are you at in life? You know, like a, it's actually, 
all these things that I'm seeing or saying or whatever, all these throwaway lines that, I, that, I, that I'm just been saying all my life, it's actually, I'm the one that has to enact all that stuff. And, uh, and, and if, I, if, I, if I keep just saying it without enacting it, then my whole life is kind of, um, yeah, whatever. It's, 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 it's a pretense. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a show, isn't it? So, so yeah, I just, I, all of that stuff struck me this week. Um, and, and particularly, oh, because when I had to do that little five for five thing too, um, you know, I, I found that spot where, you know, Jesus talks, but he's not just about talk. He actually goes out and does everything that he says he he he'll say yeah uh, for god so loved the world uh, yada yada next thing he's out there talking to uh, the samaritan woman and giving her life uh, you know just speaking life into her and not treating her as an outcast but just saying hey w- what's happening with life for you where, where are you at and so yeah so it's just this idea, and, and, and church unity just comes into that too, you know, like it's, it's all of us being all of those things that we know about God to each other. Hmm. Hi, I'm Robert. Um, I felt like I had to stand up and say something because what Glenda said, what Martin said, and what Lisa said, it's all reinforcing another, another way of looking at Jesus. Um, someone told me years ago that if you want to talk about Jesus, don't talk about Jesus, talk about the impact Jesus had on people's lives and those people who have been impacted. And it's sort of another way of looking at all these stories. And what Glenda was saying about Jesus being arrested, I thought of a song, that's where Martin comes into it, <laughs> um, by David Meath, where he said, when Jesus was being arrested, what could he have done? He could have called 10,000 angels and destroyed the world and set himself free. But he didn't. He died alone for you and for me. And that really impacted me, the absolute power that Jesus had. And it explains why these people who just fell over when you said, I am he. Anyway, just something to think about. I, I uh, have some things to, to say, but they're nowhere near as profound as that. So. <laughs> but uh, here's a bit of a test question for you. Without looking at your Bible... What's the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples as a group? No. <laughs> In John's Gospel. Anyone know? No? How about this? Come and have breakfast. Right? Look it up. It's the last thing he said to the group, right? Then he has this discourse with Simon Peter. So I thought that was interesting. And you heard, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'd have heard me tell that story. Right, the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples as a group, it was on the beach, and it's the beginning of chapter 21. And 
Dave's taught me that John doesn't waste words, so there's this whole half story, which I'm sure has great depth to it, which is about Jesus on the beach, right? And uh, this is, this, it, like, the guys, there's seven guys together, and uh, Simon Peter, the one Simon Peter, says, I'm going out to fish, and a bit like us in same way, we go and do stuff together. So the other guys say, we'll come with you. So they off, off they go to go and fish. And then it's night, and then it's day, right? Does that remember, ring a bell? Back to Genesis. Right? Anyway, um, uh, early in the morning again, Dave, and you remind so many things happened early in the morning, right? Here's another one. So Jesus is on the beach, and he asks them a question. Friends, haven't you any fish? And do you reckon Jesus knew, didn't know the answer? That's why he was asking. <laughs> anyway, I'd love to go fishing where Jesus is there, because he... he <laughs> Throw your net out the other side, right? Anyway, so I just thought that, you know, the point that Dave was making about, you know, where are you? Jesus, like I said before, Jesus met with the group of disciples literally where they were, which is out in the water, right, at the beach. And, you know, if you think about it, you go out fishing all night, how are you going to be in the morning, especially if you haven't caught anything, right? Annoyed and hungry, right? And tired. And... That's what he's got. He's got breakfast, right? Come and have breakfast. That's the last thing he said. And I think that's we do that a lot in Soma, which is have meals, do things as a group. Unity is there again. But I just picked up on something else, and I don't know what the significance of this is, but um, uh, the other disciples, you know, Simon Peter recognises Jesus, jumps out and goes 100 yards, according to the Bible, to go and see him. And uh, the others follow in the boat, and they couldn't get the net in because the net's too heavy, right? 153 fish, apparently. And um, uh, Jesus then says, uh, I don't know why, but he says, bring some of the fish. And guess who goes to get the fish? Right? That's Simon Peter. Simon Peter gets back in the boat, right? gets back in the boat and drags the net ashore. I don't know why the other guys didn't do it, but anyway. I hope that, like I said, not as profound. said about Jesus being the gardener and... Um and that little like wink wink thing. Um, has, I thought that was really cool. I'd never made that link before. Like Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. Well, yeah, he is. And it's that harking back to um, Genesis. That was really cool. Um, another thing that when you were talking about Jesus um, laid down his life freely, it was his to lay down and his to take back up again. Um, and I've kind of been thinking over that. And um, I gave a talk at my chapel at school last Wednesday um, and I was as I was kind of processing how to say that just the idea that it was Jesus life to lay down and his to take back up really helped me kind of work through that and I was like oh yeah like it just so many things fit into place um, so yeah this series has been super helpful for lots of areas mm. um, also just quickly, can I? This kind of relates over this John series. James and Sarah have started coming to Pro Live, um, and I feel like they have been such a blessing um, to our live already. Haven't been there heaps long, but just the amount of um, Jesus that they bring into that has been really awesome. Um, they're so open and sharing, and it's been lovely. So praise God for them.